On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be joined by Lawrence Green as we'll talk about the untimely death of the adverts we liked and why it matters. We'll take a look back at some of the inflection points in our industry and we'll discuss how, despite the promise of a new golden age of advertising, we've ended up where we are today. We'll also talk about some iconic campaigns that Lawrence worked on. So stay tuned to this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome. We've talked a lot about creativity in the last few months and we're going to continue in a similar vein today as I'm delighted to be joined by Lawrence Green, a co-founder of the agencies Fallon London and 101 and is now an independent advisor to creative businesses. Welcome, Lawrence. Hello, Dave. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for joining me. Before we, we get started, um, how's life for you at the moment in your part of the world? How's business? Uh, life is good. Sun is shining, uh, although it's uh, suddenly quite cold, as I understand it is in Dublin. And business is good. You know, business is changing. That's that's the bottom line. But business is good. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. And what's your working conditions like? Are you working from home? Are you working in an office? or Mix of the two at the moment, like most people. Um, I'm actually a big fan of the office and, and on the record. Yeah. <laughs> as, uh, the right place for creative people to um, apply at least some of their trade. So yeah. um, L- London's on the back foot, uh, Dave. Right? Most people aren't back, you know, even three days a week. Um, I think that's going to turn once we're through Christmas yeah. and um, people be t- together again. You know, having all the the serendipitous conversations that are the really interesting ones. Certainly, mm. if you're if you're agency side, the, the um, there are more problems solved in corridors and by people Absolutely. who aren't assigned the problem than there are by uh, by all the sort of task based stuff we can do online as individuals. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I think that's going to um, unlock some some stuff for us. Yeah, I, de- I totally agree. So I'm looking I'm looking for it, but like I wouldn't want to go back to the old way of five days a week in the office. So I'll have a blend myself. But anyway. Um, so thanks for joining me and we're going to kick off. So you wrote an article, it's in today's Irish Times um, and it's titled The Unlikely Death of the Adverts We Liked and Why It Matters. So it's a brilliant piece. I really um, enjoyed reading it and I'd recommend anyone who's listening at the moment to read it. But we're going to have a chat about that um, and a few other things as well. So I'm going to jump in and just start with that article. In, in it, you talked about in the last 50 years, our industry you know, facing two major inflection points, um, the birth of commercial TV and then later the digital revolution. So Talk to me about the significance and the impact of these things and, and, and maybe kind of the expectation that they set. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, Dave, the, the advertising industry is a, an excitable place. We're fascinated by the new and um, we have described by one uh, very brilliant client as like dogs that bark at every passing car. Right. And uh, I think every now and then it's good just to stop, take stock uh, and take a longer view on where we are and how we got here because there's some stuff we've lost as well as some stuff we've gained along the way. And I, I, I caught the tail end of what, what was known as advertising golden age, which was really that TV era. Mm. And I was there at the kind of front end of, of the digital revolution that's still playing out. I, I found myself trying to make sense of what I could see around me, you know, the, the short-termism and the diminished effectiveness that we're seeing, the uh, lowering of creative standards, the decline in the popularity and, and trust of advertising. I, I couldn't help but feel that they were related to those two very different eras. Mm. You know, the, the TV era was, by definition, this extraordinary new color technology beamed into everyone's living rooms. You know, it was, it was broadcast. It was very good at, at building brands over the medium and long term. And then 
15 years ago, we found ourselves pitched into a completely new era of narrow cast, more atomized advertising with much more emphasis on immediate sales driving uh, than long-term brand building. And I, I think as a result, we've gone from an advertising culture as agency people or clients or even citizens, which used to be you know, shared and almost like a you know, a common language, mm-hmm. just something that is much more individualized, much more immediate and not as communal and not as welcome as it, as it used to be. I, I feel like the ship is sort of listing mm-hmm. towards not, not bad practice, but just, just new practice that takes us to a different place. And that makes people like, you know, myself certainly a little nostalgic for some of the uh, the way in which advertising worked in the past. And I think there's there's some lessons for today's uh, brand builders uh, as as well as yesterday's in that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And there is a danger sometimes that we we look back, you know, as at the age that we are, and we look back fondly upon things, and we are kind of reluctant to change. But I definitely agree. There's been there's been lots of positives. And and in your article, you point out that Google and Facebook have replaced the kind of the, the Don Drapers and that kind of change of, of power um, in the advertising industry. And the way you put it is that because the the ad agencies were oh it's disruptors. So you say well the disruptors were disrupted. Um, and as you said, there's there there's, look there's there's rightly winners and losers to all this. So. I think one of the benefits is that advertising is is far more accessible now for small business. I always make this point that like Facebook and Google, most of their business comes from the kind of small mom and pop businesses. They have incredible tools that, you know, as an advertiser, you don't really need an agency, but it means you become, I suppose, essentially hooked on these tools because they are brilliant from an advertising point of view with stuff you can do with relatively simple access. So, you know, and they help you reach the right audiences. They help you see what's working. Um, you know, there's obvious losers in terms of when money goes into digital, the media loses. So, you know, print first, TV and radio. But you you kind of touched on this there a second ago, that apart from the obvious things, which are media channels winning and losing, um, you said that something more precious has been lost in that transition between these eras. What was that? Yes, I think um, there's no attempt to turn the, the clock back, Dave. I, I'm, I'm with you on the, the massive growth, actually, that we've seen as an industry, thanks to new players. Um, that's not just playing out in advertising. That, that's attached to um, the more general disruption of, of the markets that advertising serves. So periods of great change, periods of great um, interest, periods of great opportunity. But I think um, in simpler times, you know, let, let's go back to the 80s, 90s. You know, you probably had one commercial channel uh, certainly in, in, mm. in Britain and Ireland. And uh, to be a, a great agency, you had to be in the commercials business. You know, you had to make great TV. And as a result, there was a client-side appetite uh, for those those massive and sudden effects that you could have in an era of mass audiences on TV. Mm. And you had something on, a, on an agency side, which was a creative arms race leading to you know, brands like uh, Levi's, like Sir John Hegarty talked about recently, um, campaigns like Tango, uh, mm. campaigns like Guinness. And I, I think um, as a result of that creative arms race, the, the audience were winners also. Yeah. They didn't have too much advertising in their lives. Creative standards were generally high. I mean, it wasn't uniformly the case, but they were generally high. And um, there's a rather sort of strange statistic that's been measured for, for decades now, which is um, a, a research question that asks people to agree or disagree with the ads being as good as the programs. Now, that, that grew right through the 1980s. It peaked in 1991 and has been in constant decline ever since. Mm. But I think there was a kind of high watermark, evidentially, where people 
either welcomed advertising into their lives or at least tolerated it in in return for free to air mm. content. And I, there was, if you like, a, a happy ecosystem between clients and agencies, media owners who are selling the space, and audiences who are on the receiving end. And mm. um, I think that's gone missing in today's new advertising culture. Yeah, it's a great point because I, I think we've talked about it before and it's come up on a lot of the podcasts about, you know, advertising just not making the same impact or mark on culture. And and you're you're right. People talked about ads then and that's, I don't know what's happened. Maybe I remember, I know that statement well from TGI and I don't know whether it's just a case that ads are not as good anymore so people don't talk about them or people are just less willing to accept that value exchange. I think people put up with ads because, you know, it funded the content and, and now in a world where we can block things and oh, let's be honest, we get bombarded with advertising. You know, there's just too much of it. So I think it's probably a little bit of both. And I'm going to talk about some campaigns that you have been involved in your agencies because I think they're, they're brilliant for different reasons. Um, and they're, they're all well known in Ireland. So I'm going to first talk about the Skoda campaign. Now that was some turnaround as a brand because I would have grown up with that one like Skoda's. They were, they were a joke uh, of a campaign. But like in your article and, and some of the, the notes that you sent me, you talked about the crisis that, that the brand was facing and even it, actually the client brief, the words of the phrase that the client used in terms of the, the size of that challenge. Can you talk to me about that and just what situation the brand was in? Uh, yeah, of course I can, because it was probably the most parlous state any, any brand could be in ever. And um, it, it needs retelling, because I know, that, I know the brand is a big brand in Ireland these days. It's a pretty big brand over here to date. But back in the day, there was no brand in any category that was more broken than Skoda. Um, we'd been the only country in the world to import their cars when they were still being produced under monopolistic conditions in Czechoslovakia, which... Um, had resulted in exceptionally good price points, but exceptionally poor product quality mm. verging on uh, verging on the unsafe. So anyone of a certain age may remember the fun the tabloids had at Skoda's expense. There were dozens of Skoda jokes. They're still online. And when we were asked to pitch Skoda, we were told it would destroy our agency. Right. We started a business. 18 months previously and then you know they're fragile things you know and we were being very very choiceful about our, our client base we turned down coca-cola right uh, with a kind of sharp intake of breath and folks said don't pitch skoda it will it will drag you down rather than you dragging it up and i think partly because we were willfully optimistic startup founders mm. we looked at it and thought it's now owned by volkswagen the next car's got to be pretty good. Mm -hmm. And isn't this just a case of perception and reality needing to be closed? And as you allude to, we um, we encountered this bone-honest, crestfallen, ashen-faced, but sort of totally trusting client who came into the agency to brief us with, with loads of data, but he just sat us down and he said, please help us. We've got children crying in our <laughs> showrooms. I love that. And they were, you know, it, you you kind of recognise that truth. I mean, he basically said they are so mortified by the prospect that mum or dad might drop them off at school or pick them up from a party that they're literally bursting into tears. Now, <laughs> you know, brands aren't normally that powerful on e on either side of the ledger, but at that point in time, this is late nineties. That you know, that is genuinely the case. You know, a, a car is a, a kind of a family's badge yeah. of their identity to a degree, and. Uh, yeah, a big problem for the new owner of Volkswagen and, and essentially one of, of social stigma that needed to be fixed. But, but interesting that you said that, okay, the cars were rubbish before. So, I mean, you can only do so much in advertising, but you took a punt in saying that, look, we're going to trust Volkswagen that they're going to make a good car. So how did you 
Because that's one thing, right? But you've got to change people's perceptions and their opinions. So what, what was the idea behind the campaign and what do you do? What was the work? There was, there was no way we were going to argue people into submission. Um, what we had to hand was a good new car, we hoped. And also we had uh, broadcast advertising uh, to hand because we realized that we were faced with, uh, as I say, a, a, a stigma that needed to be punctured. And we needed to kind of reframe the conversation around the brand. So my, my creative directors wrote a, a line that would go with the new car that simply said, it's a Skoda, honest. And that, that last word carries a lot of weight in that very short end line, because it's basically saying to the viewer, we know what you used to think about us, but you know, we, we'd like you to think again. Mm. And we wrote TV commercials where the, um, the naysayers were obviously on the wrong side of the fence. The people who'd refused to believe that this new car was a Skoda looked foolish, whether it was the, the bumbling diplomat on a factory tour or the mechanic at a motor show trying to put it on the wrong plinth. You know, these were little, you know, 40-second uh, creative gems that, that uh, moved people from one side of the argument to the other very quickly because you couldn't leave that commercial without going, this mm. brand's self-aware, the people who think Skoda is crap uh, are yesterday's uh, men. And uh, I, I'm on side with, with this revolution, partly because we, we dared to do it so yeah. boldly. And, yeah, um, it was very brave, I have to say, because kind of leaning into, and, you know, we're not going to mention John Hagerty all the time, but he did say, you know, the, the best advertising finds itself in the truth. And to lean into that um, was brave, and brave by the client as well, to kind of, because your car going, look, I know you think the cars are shit, but but they're not, <laughs> like, you know, they're not anymore. So it was, it was quite a brave Quite a brave campaign. I actually think it's something that came up before when I was, we were in a car pitch a while ago. I think they've done a brilliant job. They've continued to do brilliant campaigns. I think even we live in an era now where everything is kind of globalised, creative. Um, and quite often, you know, when you're trying to fit something in every market, it doesn't resonate anywhere. But they've done a brilliant campaign for Ireland. I think that the whole, the, the line is made for Ireland. And it basically says, although the car is kind of made in Czech Republic or whatever, everything about it suggests it's made for Ireland, which is just a lovely campaign. And it relates to people in Ireland, I think, without trying to you know, pass itself off as Irish. Just though, it, again, it's it's kind of found in the truth. So I think that it's done a great job. Now, the second campaign that you reference in your article is the the other, this is kind of a, you know, this, this showreel is, is an embarrassment of creative riches, but it's the Sony Bravia campaign where the, the new end line from Global was like no other. And that really inspired, again, inspired much the same way Skoda did, inspired your creative director kind of to think that we have to, which is not easy, we have to do a campaign like no other. So can you just talk to me a little bit about that campaign, just the, the kind of thing I alluded to a little bit, the, the inspiration behind it, the idea, like one, I remember again that when that campaign broke, it was just visually beautifully stunning, like in style wise, it felt much more like a campaign I'd expect to see from from an Apple or, or even a Samsung. Was that the aim? Was that was that what you was that what you were looking to to try and uplift that brand a little bit? Yeah, very much. I mean, we, we're only sort of five years after Skoda, which is a, you know a relatively orthodox broadcast campaign. But we now find ourselves in the cusp of a new era. You know, this is um, the birth of uh, YouTube and Facebook. They they weren't yet mass, but suddenly the internet was becoming a plausible kind of brand building space. Um, and quite an innocent one at those at that point. So, so Sony was troubled at that point. They'd lost their sheen to Apple for sure. They'd lost share in televisions to Samsung and, and LG and people like that. And we were asked to launch, as you say, not just the new Bravia range, but a new global tagline mm. like no other. And we had, because um, we'd had a, a previous round of less successful and sort of very English 
work. Um, it was uh, studded full of dialogue, which wasn't great because it meant we couldn't, you know, properly run it across Europe, which was the plan all along. We were slightly on the back foot, Dave, because we'd had, you know, one unsuccessful sort of pan-European sortie with way too much dialogue and quite a, a clever sort of British advertising idea. And uh, we spun round the creative response in our agency and got to Juan Cabral, um, an Argentinian creative director. And, and he just asserted that if, if the brand wanted to be understood as like no other, it had to do advertising mm. like no other. And rather than having some some big long script with left-hand sides and right-hand sides of actions and dialogue, he just had a sentence which said, we bounce thousands of coloured balls downhill and film it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, yes, that sounds rather interesting. You know, go away and turn it into a proper script. <laughs> and he came back a few days later and he just had that sentence. We bounced thousands of coloured <laughs> balls downhill. And, and you know what? He was he was right. Yeah. He was um, he'd found uh, in his own you know imaginations something that was impressionistic and almost dreamlike. Mm-hmm. And he had a very clear sense of how he would execute it. We um, we went to San Francisco uh, to to find you know good hills and great light, and actually it turns out there would have been a much better reason for going there because it was at that point probably still is uh, one of if not the most wired city in the world. Mm. So um, as we were to find out quite by accident at this point, the internet uh, could be our friend as we put um, even traditional broadcast campaigns to bed. Mm. Was that um, um, by accident, essentially, that, that that all happened? Because in the article, you mentioned that it was one of the, the first commercials ever to be kind of powered by new media before it reached old media. So was that something that you'd planned for or did it just happen? And then I know we, we'll talk about the next campaign after where you really kind of ramped that up. But were you, did you just get lucky in that instance? I know it was great when it went on TV, but but the, the power of, of new media, had you planned for it or did you just get lucky? We definitely hadn't planned for it because no one was at that point. Mm. Um because you couldn't kind of systematically work these nascent tools in the way that people would go on to do so. Um, you know, you could say we made our luck by closing six streets in a you know in a big busy American city and uh, hurling hundreds of thousands of colored mm. balls. I think there were a quarter of a million of them hurling them down the hills out of big mechanical diggers. And um, people were always going to pay attention. Yeah. Um, there were car alarms going off. Our production team were wearing hard hats and riot gear because these these balls, you know, could get up quite a head of steam right. by the time they're at the bottom. So I think we made our luck in that it was going to get noticed. Right. Um, what we hadn't anticipated, though, was how quickly and how eagerly people would begin to upload photos on onto what was then a very early photo sharing site called Flickr. Yeah. Which I think is still going today. But it's certainly not, you know, it's not Instagram. Um, and I, I was back at our office in London, whereas others were on the shoot. And we, we got these panicky calls coming in saying there's images from the shoot all over this site called Flickr. And, of course, as soon as we looked on them, looked at them from London, we just thought, well, this looks, this looks great. great. Yeah. But it was um, very much at odds with the, you know, the old rules of a launch, which you'll know, Dave. You, you keep your powder dry. Mm. Don't let competitors mm. find out. Share it you know, as you approach an air date, what what was happening here was a campaign starting as we were still shooting. Yeah, yeah, I definitely broke the rules of, of how we, because I, I, you know, I, I always laugh, we used to do these things and you'd be so precious and we even can't go, we're going to kick it off it's in the, you know, halftime break in the Champions League and we, we have to be really careful, don't do anything or you might go later on, we'd be saying, 
we'll see today with our fans first. It's like as if anyone cares that much about the advertising. We're, you know, we're doing them a favour, letting them see the ad and social channel first. But it definitely did. It started to, and that was quite an interesting trend, I think, that went on this, you know, the role that new media could play. But I think one of the interests, although as we the ball may have started to roll on new media, if you pardon the pun, it, did, it really did explode. So it wasn't like it was a campaign that um, said, well, you know, it's on Flickr, we've done our job it really took off and exploded when it went on TV. And that's, you know, understandably because of visual impact and the, the style of that ad. And, we, and it's one of the things I've talked about a lot, campaigns not creating a market and culture like the use of, but this, this was one of those campaigns. It really did impact culture. The music became famous. But the question I have is that, like, what did, what did it do? Did it do a lot for the brand? Was it successful in terms of the business results for that campaign, as well as all the kind of impact it had on culture? Yeah, it was hugely successful, Dave. I mean, the interesting thing about that kind of launch buzz from the shoot itself was that the organizational momentum was massive. So they um, committed to a two and a half minute commercial, which was kind of unheard of. We took over the whole centre break of, a, I think, a, I think Manchester United Chelsea Premier League mm. game, and um, it pretty much silenced British British pubs. Um, right. And I heard anecdotal response that there'd even been a round of applause at you know at the end of it. You know, this isn't a you know yeah, yeah. a busy pub full of football fans. Um, but of course, the client was much more interested in whether it was going to actually. Uh, regain brand leadership. They, they'd lost brand leadership, and, and flat screen TVs were becoming a very big business. Uh, so it was business critical um, that they did so. And the commercial worked incredibly fast. I mean, we would be in department stores doing store checks, and you'd hear people asking for the balls one. Right. Um, yeah. And you're suddenly slightly awed by the fact that you've created this kind of irrational demand something on the basis of um, a commercial that dared to be, as you say, you know, more like art yeah. than advertising. We, we launched the thing at Tate Britain, which was incredibly hubristic. But I think people did just think it was out, out of this world almost. Mm. And um, we actually had to take the commercial off air only two weeks into, I think, a six-week burst because we knew we couldn't meet demand. So right. we created space for them to build a second factory uh, in Europe. And within a year, they were back as brand leader. So um, right. it, it's an outlier because it worked exceptionally hard, exceptionally quickly. Yeah, like right, Tom, you make your own look, as you said there. Um, and you kind of said you learn from that because in terms of not just creative, look creatively, you stand out, be different. Um, you, you know, all, too many of the ads look the same. But doing something truly different creatively is re- is really really important. But also from a media point of view, you and in your article you talk about that that campaign um, created an, an accidental playbook that you then put to work uh, more deliberately the following year for the famous Cadbury Gorilla campaign. Now I that's a campaign that is fond, it's dear to my heart because I worked on that um, when I was an account director back in Cara, um, and I remember it was just brilliant fun. I, thought, I mean the guy briefed us on it, and I, I thought he would lost the plot like because we hadn't seen any scams of it or anything like that. He was trying to explain it to me he's saying it's gorilla you know and phil collins and i was going why is he i I, he was a bit mad anyway and i thought he's clearly got this wrong but that was actually the ad but um so before we jump into that i mean i look back on cadbury and it's cadbury's weird because people kind of a big factory in ireland people think it's an irish brand and then they think it's a in the uk it is an english brand but it it kind of looked on fondly within ireland but it was a, a, a company in a bit of trouble. It badly needed a, bit, a shot in the arm back then, as it were, um, a bit of an ad campaign to give it a bit of adrenaline to reignite the love that, that had been lost a little bit. So before we get into that ad, people forget that, I think. Cadbury had a bit of bad press and B, PR at the time. Was that as big as I remember it to be? Because I worked on it then, but that was that was true, wasn't it? Yeah, so um, we were briefed uh, the year after they'd had a salmonella uh, scare. 
And um, I mean, the brand kind of pushed on past that, but but the organization was quite troubled by it, uh, as you would be. And I, I think to your point, this is a brand that feels Irish to the Irish, feels Australian to Australians. Mm. Um, I've talked about it in, in, in India, where they have great ownership of the Cadbury brand as well. So it's always had a place in our hearts. And it was partly troubled by that and, and also had just kind of gone missing. They had a successful sponsorship of Coronation Street at mm. the time. But the the brands had all become kind of subsumed into the Coronation Street property, which is one of the dangers of sponsorship. Mm. And they'd all sort of melded into one because um, there was a, a kind of uh, chocolate cast, if you if you imagine such a thing. Mm. And and I, I think the opportunity, and it's easy to see this in, in retrospect, was just to, to drag those brands out of that sponsorship space, yeah. give them back some prime time attention and and unlock the thing that's special in Cadbury. You know, it's always been the brand that we think of when we think about Willy Wonka, strangely, mm. and, you know, the, the magic, the magic of um, confection, the magic of chocolate. So there was all along, there was something waiting to be um, untapped. And in fact, our, our client briefed us. And again, to your point earlier about clients being the true heroes in, in these moments, they asked for advertising that was as enjoyable as the product itself. Right. Which, uh, at that point in a brief, you just want to say, okay, stop. Just leave no pressure. Two weeks. Yeah, no pressure. That's easy. Yeah. An ad that people enjoy as much as chocolate. Yeah, easy. Well, you'd rather enjoy the pressure and the kind of openness of that and the ambition of that than something over-engineered because there's mm. no way, you know, I, I can't persuade you to, to buy dairy milk rather than Galaxy, but I can remind you that I'm here, put mm. a little smile on your face um, and win some, you know, share of mind as well as share of heart and, and that's what we went on to do mm. yeah it was it was phenomenal um and i, I always mention the fact that because one of the bugbears i have which um, you've listened to a couple of podcasts is about you know research focus groups link tests whatever you want to call them um and i always heard the fact that 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 campaign bombed in research now i i, I pretend i always pretended i knew this because i worked on it that's completely untrue i only heard much later after the fact that and i didn't know whether it was folklore or true at the time but i just wanted to be true so badly so i always threw it out as a fact it did actually bomb though did it it really did bomb in, in when when audiences looked at in some shape size or form before it went out on air yeah it, it absolutely bombed and, and i i can explain how we kind of wriggled out of that you know i i've never left a creative presentation with clients slapping me on the back i mean we we, we presented gorilla in an unremarkable office block just outside watford we pressed play on a CD player and we read a script out, you know, which pretty much frame by frame became mm. the drumming gorilla, including even that, you know, the, the flash of gold tooth, if you remember that. Mm, I but, do. But, um, but apart from that original sort of cohort of, of brave marketing department, the company, and again, perhaps this was because it had been on the back foot, the company just didn't understand it, wasn't supportive. And at, at that point, of course, they're going to commission research. And, mm. Every time we researched Gorilla quantitatively, uh, it failed, you know, the quantitative tests that you and I know about because so so many of those pretests are based on old models of persuasion. Yeah. In particular, there was a there was a almost like a trick question um in, in one of the questionnaires, which asked something like, To what extent could this be an advert for another brand? And of course, if you're in logical research mode, you know, you know, rather than just sitting in your living room enjoying mm. telly, you contemplate that, you know, with someone in a, with a with a you know clipboard and a questionnaire, and you go, well, actually, a drumming gorilla could be for any other brand, so I'm going to mark it. I'm going to mark it down. And as a result, we had sort of flashing reds for do not, you know, yeah. do not air 
rather than the flashing greens that the thing should have deserved. So, yeah, yeah we, there was a six-month tussle. I think we had four different research pretests: two quantitative, very damning; two qualitative, much more encouraging. And we just kept reminding the the exec team at, at Cadbury that all we were trying to do was get noticed, raise a smile, and for people to know it's Cadbury's. And of course, that's that's all that commercial does. Mm. But it does it in spades. Yeah, and again, bravery, it comes up quite a lot. Um, help me understand this. You put you put something into test, it bombs. Um, and what I see too often is the classic, okay, put the logo in it, whatever they would have said to you, and there's no bar, okay, let, let's have the gorilla holding the bar, and then you just kind of lose the essence of the ad. So it bombs. And how do you end up in a position where the client says, listen, I believe in this. I don't care what people say. I don't care whether the people internally in Cadbury get it or not. I'm the chief marketing officer. I get it. And I think it's going to work. How did you sell it into Phil Rumble, or did you have to sell it into him? Um, did you did he take a gamble on you? I presume he took a bit of a gamble because of if this doesn't work, he could be getting fired after that. Going, we told you it didn't work. Everything said it wasn't going to work, and you still wasted money making it. So, what was that journey like to get the client on board to to go with it? Well, he was certainly on board from the get go. So he was one of the people slapping us on the back, um, yeah. and he's a pretty resilient fellow. And, and in fact, what he always said is, is, is that the hard thing about um, the gorilla wasn't buying it from us, it was selling it to his organization. Mm. So I, I think there were three things that, that got us over the line. The first thing is that we'd shot it, Dave. So, um, you know, this this pre-testing was being done with a finished film rather mm. than something fragile and easy okay. to dispose of. So, so we kind of had, um, we'd sunk some costs. And I think for that very reason, it sort of it lived in the grey area between finished and approved for a little while than, gotcha. than most things would. Mm-hmm. I, I think also, um, whenever we looked at it qualitatively, we could see it working. Mm-hmm. And good qualitative research, which is led by idea rather than just a sort of prisoner of the numbers, mm-hmm. um, was our friend at that point. And I think both Phil and his colleagues and us as an agency, we just didn't waver from recommending it or advocating it yeah. as it was. And in the end, the unlock was asking his team to take it home at the weekend and show it to their kids. Right. Because when you judge something like that in your suit and tie and in the workplace, it's the wrong context. Yeah, definitely. You know, you're going to find logical, risk-averse reasons why this won't work. It's got no chocolate in it for a start. Yeah. But you take it home and you play it, you know, in a, a, a more appropriate context and you see family members smiling and saying dad or mum yeah. I can't believe your company's doing that I can't wait to tell my mates that suddenly you're reminded that that you have to you have to occupy the shoes of the audience mm. um, rather than the advertiser's boots yeah and true. that that was really unlocked yeah, and again, it was kind of a common thread here. It was it was like no, advertising like no other before it. I think that you know it was just truly different, and that was what was amazing and unique about it. It it made a huge mark on culture, like you know, resurrected Phil Collins' career. But I remember even like it just really exploded in terms of user generated content, remixes on YouTube. You know, it was even parodied on TV shows. It really just exploded in popular culture. And one of the things you know, to, to a bystander, these things, they often look like it just happened organically. It was effortlessly organic. But how much of this did you plan for and how much uh, and how much work did you put into to creating a campaign with a view to it being, uh, you know, open to participation from people in terms of assets and playing with it and, and, and giving it a new life and a new spin on, on social, which was exploding at the time? How much of that was by design? 
Uh, it's a great question because a lot of it was by design. Um, I mean, our, our timing was good, remember. This is 2007, I think, and YouTube is only 18 months old, but it is getting mass traction. Um, I mean, I think it's now the second most visited website in the world, isn't it? At that point, it was we were just beginning to, you know, share remarkable video. It wasn't advertising, yeah. but we were just beginning to share remarkable video with one another in a, in a way that we now take for granted. So our, our, our timing was good. And bear in mind, this is a familiar brand, a familiar song. It's got an animal in it. You know, it, had, it had all the ingredients for sort of shareability. And, and people tried to codify that mm. after the event. But I, I think it's a hard thing to, to code. But I think, I think our timing was good. I think that people were, were ready to, to pass on advertising in a way that they, they stopped doing pretty soon afterwards. Mm. But we did do a lot of early seeding work. Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose today it would be known as an influencer strategy. Um, you know, we, we made sure that the people who were already sharing content knew about Gorilla. Mm. We put a few remixes uh, out ourselves so that that would encourage other people to find remixes. Um, you know, one of those, uh, which was Bonnie Tyler. Yeah, I remember that one. So an, another 80s career reignited. Um, that actually ended up going onto TV. So there was this wonderful circularity about a lot of a lot of organic sharing, which just doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Some very deliberate seeding and remixing and encouragement from us for people to participate in it. And then this rather sort of happy coincidence of, of social driving TV as well as TV driving social. There, there was, you know, unashamedly, there was a big broadcast budget behind this, Dave, in, mm. in Britain and in Ireland and then in Australia and New Zealand. So it, it, this wasn't, you know, it didn't purely grow by word of mouth. It, it had that mix of both hearing about it from a mate and yeah. then seeing it, you know, with your own eyes. Yeah, like, and believe it or not, like we, this is how loved it was in Ireland. And as a, you know, we're talking about parody, we did a live out of it at a football match, which went out on TV in an Ireland football match. And like a halftime with the gorilla on pitch with a drum kit, and we obviously played the music. And that was a madness, you know, but it just, it just took over everything. So it was, it lent itself to parody and kind of user generated and participation just really, really well. So, but it was a phenomenal campaign. And I actually remember working on that because from a media point of view, it was quite an exciting time because you saw this, the rules of media had changed. It was the dawn of a new era. Like, you know, it didn't turn out like this, but the idea that we don't need TV anymore. We actually don't even need paid media of any description anymore, which, as you point out there, was, was nonsense. But that that was the kind of promise that that I think this campaign really, really kind of, you know, gave to people that... But you do. You need a piece of creative that's going to capture the imagination first and foremost, and that's really that's really hard to bottle and redo. Um, but I do think as well. One of the things that drove me mad was the idea of I want to create a viral ad, and that's probably partly down to this campaign because people said we don't need TV. I want to create an ad that's going to go viral. I want to create a viral ad, um, and you heard grown men and grown women saying this was straight face and meetings. I want to create a viral ad. You know, I remember every episode of The Apprentice would have every season would have one episode of create a viral ad, and there's just rubbish, absolute nonsense. This stuff that they do because you, you can't really. It has to be brilliant creative in the first place. But the promise in media was great. But in theory then, did you see this kind of new rules of media, which is kind of, you know, I guess from, from your point of view, you were quite familiar with, we make a TV ad, the media agency books the space, but media and creative working far closer together and kind of understanding how we can see things out. And, and you talk about influencers and, you know, giving people tools to do remixes. 
it was quite an exciting time and, and it, it, it did promise a lot. But did that actually happen? Did you see this as a potentially new golden age? And, and, then, and then from your point of view, was that the reality? Well, it wasn't the reality, it turned out. But what was your view on that? So, um, yes, I was one of those kind of heady optimists in, in that, you know, year or two probably where TV and kind of early digital, certainly early social tactics were playing beautifully together. And, and I, like most people, thought that might be the start of a new, you know, golden age. Because mm-hmm. if you could, if you were prepared to advertise bravely, to your point, you, you could find your way to free media, mm-hmm. most likely alongside paid-for media. But but what a what a prize, you know, to, to have work that was shared and, and participated with by, by your audiences. It, it turned out to be a completely false dawn. And in retrospect, I think we'd overestimated a couple of things. Firstly, people's level of interest in advertising. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was higher then than it is now, but it's, you know, it comes pretty low down the pecking order of people's real lives. But I think we'd also overestimated our ability to create genuinely irresistible content. Mm. And then, of course, the tech giants turned themselves into big advertising businesses themselves rather mm. than just being sort of happy, accidental hosts. Mm. Uh, for this um, recent wave of advertising. So I, look, I shared the optimism at the time. Um, it definitely created um, new distribution for advertising. What it, what it didn't create was an enduring leap in creative standards. Yeah, and I guess that's the bit that's the bit that's often forgotten. I think that we bought into this um, new new rules of media and forgot the fact that I mean, if you could create a guerrilla campaign for everything and have that impact, well, yeah, that model would probably still work. But it, at the underlying, at the heart of that underlying was was a brilliant creative idea, and and those brilliant ideas will find their way into the world. But I think what happened was the certainly in briefs I got the, the tail started to wag the dog that we started to try and plan the organic nature and the and the virality of a campaign without having any kind of good creative behind it which which just doesn't work so wrong it's a wrong way around on a creative point of view for a second like it's great to have such an ad that you know is brilliant creatively but but it it kind of ripped up the rule book of from paid to earned but what that does do is it sets a a bar pretty high for you now. Um, now I know the return on advertising lasts far longer than a campaign. Uh, you know, arguably people still look back fondly and it still has an impact. Makes people that guerrilla campaign probably makes people feel positively about Cadbury still today. So it lasts a long time even after we stop running it. But I do remember. Um, from purely from a creative point of view, like the eyebrows campaign was next, I think, or was one or two after that. And they would have been pretty good on their own. But because they came after Gorilla, they were a, a difficult second album, as it were. So was that just understanding from an AZ point of view, you do that and you have a moment where you, everyone, you, you're getting slapped in the back by the client. Was there a moment where you go, shit, what, what do we do after this? Um, was the pressure from everybody and the expectations so big that it was going to be just really hard to, to, to recreate that? Where did you go and how did you, what was the view in the agency like to, to, to follow that second album? It was uh, a tricky time. The, the difficult second album was, just as you say, uh, the second commercial um, out of the bunch. So we created this notion of glass and a half full productions. Mm. If you remember, that's how the gorilla gets introduced. And and the drumming gorilla was going to be the first of our productions. And uh, firstly, it works. Uh, As you say, it becomes a cultural thing rather than just a paid-for advertising play. This brand sentiment changed. Sales leapt, which is pretty improbable for a big brand. Um, It won the Grand Prix at Cannes uh, the following year. So it was, you know, 
technically the world's best commercial <laughs> that year. And I, and I think we probably all, um, I'm not a golfer, but I'm told if you grip the putter too tightly, that's, that's not good for your game. And I, I think um, we probably were. Right. We, we created a spot called Airport Trucks. Oh, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, which had them racing along in the end to a John Bon Jovi track, Living on a Prayer, which just didn't have the same charm, um, didn't have the same lightness, didn't have the same kind of madness about it. And it, and it was only when we then loosened our grip a little bit that we got to the dancing eyebrows. Yeah. And, and that, again, it's less enduring than Gorilla, but that had exactly the same effect in the moment of being parodied, mm. being on talk shows. So, I, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's a nice problem to have, uh, yeah. the, the difficult second album, but it, 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 it was a thing. And we pushed on through it with eyebrows and did a, a lot of other good work for Cadbury um, for, for their other brands too. Mm. But but Gorilla was the, was the high point. And it's still, I think it's still voted Britain's favourite TV commercial, as you say, 15 years on. And mm. uh, I suspect that in Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, India, it is still working for the brand. That's the, that's the extraordinary thing about this era of advertising, that it was built to create enduring memories yeah. and therefore the very best does echo down the ages and still works for, for the brand that, that, that bought it. Yeah, and I, I think it, it it just kind of, you know, when it's a perfect storm, I think the fact that it was for a brand that, that you know, was the nation's favourite, people held that brand so close to their heart, I think it was, that probably made it even even better if it had been for, you know, coffee, it may have been maybe forgotten about a bit slightly quicker, but it was just a brand that everyone loved. It was a brand, it was a national treasure for everybody. And that thing you pointed out about Irish people think it's Irish, New Zealand people think it's New Zealand and UK. So it is something that we held dear to our hearts. So, so combining that brand love, maybe slightly latent brand love, but still quite strong with a brilliant idea. It's just kind of really worked. It was great. So, you know, there we are. Gorilla's a huge success and, and it promises to change the, the rules of media forever. And that didn't quite happen. And we know what happened and you, you alluded to it earlier is because we started to get obsessed with the with the distribution of media in the channels as opposed to the idea. We kind of lost the run of ourselves to a degree. Now, this comes up a lot. I know this, this lure of of short term is just so strong and becomes overwhelming for clients. I see it all the time. I think, you know, Google and, and Facebook, not to, to kind of draw an insensitive reference, they've become like crack cocaine for advertisers. Like you, you get on, you, you, you get sold in on the promise of free media. Um, Google changed their algorithms all the time. Clients get hooked. You get all these amazing tools that make it self-serving. Now you can't spend enough because to stand still, you've got to keep putting more and more money in and it becomes the only thing that matters. And when you're on that kind of short-term cycle of quick fixes, three years down the line, who cares, right? If I can plow lots of money into Google and Facebook and deploy it myself and look at the return dashboards hourly, daily and think that this is going to give me great insight, the, the, the immediate fix I get from Google or Facebook make me not worry about marketing tomorrow but it doesn't last and what's your view on how that model has kind of evolved and, and particularly in terms of I guess when you live in that quick fix kind of ease of deployment and turning things on instantly and campaigns don't last your, your creative is going to suffer so what's your view on how, how we've got to where we are today well I think you've touched on it Dave I mean I, Google and Facebook and YouTube have added completely new things to the advertising market I mean it, you know they stole what used to be called classified advertising lunch pretty much whole because they, they're tech businesses, they're scientific businesses, they're the world in which they largely operate and their pitch to clients is immediate sales or at least leads or at least traffic to websites. Mm. And I think that was a completely new uh, language to the one that um, the previous era of kind of 
patient advertising-led brand builders had been applying, which is you'll get some immediate returns, but probably not enough to pay back your investment. Mm. But this kind of stuff, building brands, gives you sales in the future. I think it's proven that half of all kind of brand advertising effects crystallize over six months after after a commercial is aired. Mm-hmm. And they, they can, you know, if you, if you practice brand building advertising year in, year out, they can help you create these sort of mighty rolling franchises with retailer preference and price premiums and all, all the things that make your brand exceptionally valuable as, as an item on the balance sheet. I mean, your brand is typically, you know, your, your most valuable intangible asset. And I think, you know, some people were still and are still building brands to that degree. Others are enjoying, you just described as the crack cocaine of immediate sales driving with immediate accountability, mm-hmm. immediate visibility of effects. I mean, I think, I think before you advertise with Google, they can pretty much show you what's going to happen before yeah. the event. That was something I was never able to do with a client. You know, I, I could show them my own version of the science, which is branded businesses do better than unbranded businesses. Here's roughly where we expect, you know, sentiment and sales mm. to, uh, to to be shifted, but nothing like their their dashboards. And, mm. I, you know, I, advertising to a, to a degree was always out of step with the short-termism of the modern boardroom. You know, we yeah. were always saying, let's play a longer game, build the brand, you know, plant some trees rather than just harvesting the fruit. And I I think um, so many of the new tech platforms are about harvesting immediate custom, you know, chasing around the internet based on your browsing history Mm. to just force that sale out rather than investing in a business and a brand's future. So the thing has has flipped because we all know, you'll know the science as much as I do, Dave, that we should be spending roughly 60-40 in favor of, Mm growing our pool of customers in the in the upper funnel and then to a lesser degree wringing you know today's business out of that customer base and i i i see the ratio in the complete reverse which mm. is a majority of money spent harvesting the immediate customer base mm. and a minority you know looking after the future mm. yeah and it, and it's a problem because you have to you get panicked and a lot of clients do it. They spend and then they don't see the return that like, and it usually the, on, on that cycle, it kind of can take three years even for that long tail return in the, in the longer term to, to, to start to pay off. And what, what happens is clients get cold feet 18 months into it and go, that's not working. And then they, we tried that. It didn't work, but they haven't tried it long enough. Cause I think just as human nature, our idea of what constitutes long-term changes our attention spans are shorter we and you know business works in quarterly and shorter cycles so it's just a cultural problem that we have and um, well i want to talk to you about something the point that john hegarty made he he kind of says that there's not enough people now in creative agencies in advertising for the love of it anymore so people are setting up agencies with, with a view to selling in five years time and, and he said that didn't happen before so you know he says when we set up all our agencies when i set up my agencies we wanted to do great work we wanted great campaigns that people talked about now you've been involved in a few pretty big agencies and you've set them up did you were you conscious of an exit strategy down the road? Did you set them up with a view to, as a purist, saying, I just want to create great work that, you know, that I can be proud of, that impacts culture if I'm lucky? Or did you say, we could flip this business in 10 years and be millionaires? Great. That's the what was the plan? No, I mean, we, we were always playing the long game. Um, Fallon was a pure creative play. In fact, I was, I was embarrassed that I bumped into a previous boss and he asked me what my exit strategy was. Right. And I realized that I hadn't even thought about it. Um, 
Then we set up a, uh, another business, 101, which was deliberately built to bring creative skills to more than just advertising. I think we always knew that if we were doing a good job and charging a fair price for it, because we always prided ourselves on running a good business, mm. that it would be valuable, it would be saleable. But mm. that's different to the to, to the prime motive of a business being, being to flip it. And I think, um, you know, we wouldn't have turned down Coca-Cola if we were just trying to flip a business. True. Um, and I think that the strange thing there's a there's a strange narrative around entrepreneurship, which I think neglect a couple of facts. I think there's three types of entrepreneurs. There is a, a gang who are just chasing cash. You know that's that's the entrepreneur is seen on The Apprentice, and they're people who you know are unconcerned by the business they're in, and they're just trying to create a business quickly and flip it and capture some value. But I, I think there's a whole heap of entrepreneurs who are underrepresented in that narrative. One is, one is a group who just want control mm. over their lives. And that, you know, that would be all those, you know, micro businesses of, of, of one or two people, you know, the type of people who are using um, Google and Facebook as a new advertising entry point. They just want control over their hours. You know, they mm. don't want a boss. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to create something from their living room that they flip, you know, <laughs> five, 10 years later. And, and I think the third cohort are the craft entrepreneurs who just want to make things unencumbered by anxiety about money or mm. revenue or who's paying wages. And I, I think we basically had two craft businesses with, a, with at least enough people caring about the money to make sure that they were sustainable. But I, I think our narrative around entrepreneurship is slightly wonky. Mm. Yeah, great point. So, yeah, you're right, though. You say, you know, you, you would not in a million years turn down Coca-Cola if you were in it for the money. Absolutely not. Um, is it true? I, again, I may have imagined this. Was it? Did you mention to me before that Fallon London was nearly Fallon Dublin? Yeah, it was. So um, the American agency uh, that we were approached to set up uh, in Europe was, was Fallon McGilligan. They had they had been born and were still headquartered in Minneapolis in Minnesota, which was a pretty unlikely place for a great creative agency, uh, you know, admittedly that city has Prince and the Cohen brothers, but but great advertising agencies didn't start in Minneapolis. They were on Madison Avenue or in LA. You know, they they were on the East Coast or West Coast. They mm. weren't they weren't in these sort of hard bitten in the hard bitten prairie. Mm. <laughs> and um, yet, this agency, through sort of breathtaking ambition, really, um, given their origins, had gone on to beat. A lot of those Madison Avenue madmen, brands like McDonald's, Miller, BMW, United Airlines, Citibank, they'd won um, Ad Age's Agency of the Year twice from this, you know, Minnesotan base. It was pretty improbable. And the reason for giving you that backstory is that, therefore, when they looked to Europe, London was kind of the last place they wanted to be. <laughs> London, London was Madison Avenue in a way. Yeah. Um, and they were quite taken with the idea that they would be in a more contrary location. Right. Dublin was pretty much up there. Amsterdam was another thought. I mean, you'll know it as a very oh, yeah. good... It's uh, a centre of excellence for, for creative, all right, yeah. Exactly. So, no, Dub- Dublin was genuinely um, given proper contemplation as a, as a European HQ. And, and at the end of the 90s, that would have been pretty contrary. I think fast forward to today with... Um, Silicon Docs and, you know, mm. the agencies that I'm staring at. Healthy, healthy tax incentives for companies. <laughs> but healthy, but, but soon to be less, slightly less healthy tax incentives. I, I think it would make perfect sense for a, for a North American agency to, you know, find yeah. this landfall in Dublin, or, you know. Um, at, at the time, there was just enough edge 
for London in terms of concentration of advertising talent and, in truth, concentration of client companies mm. for their hand to be forced, you know, in a, into a slightly more orthodox city. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Mr. Fa- Mr. Fallon was, you know, he, he loved Ireland and uh, there was a sort of personal motive as well as, a you know, a kind of brand motive for right. them to contemplate it. We peddled this narrative of being... Um, you know, technology. We want to build our our country as a kind of a, a nation of technology experts and a hotbed of technology. And really, the reason why the tech companies are here is because it's been it's been heavily incentivized for tech. But I do think what we ha- what we actually have in our DNA is this kind of we're a creative nation. Um, storytellers, poets, musicians. You know, there is something in our DNA which makes us quite creative. As an, and I think I, I always thought we should have leaned into that more rather than trying to you know you know, pretend that we're amazing at tech, which I really don't think we are. But anyway, um, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but looking back in your career, can you just get like, what you had great success on all those campaigns we talked about. What what was your agency background and, and where, what are you doing today and what are your plans for the future? What what keeps you busy? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I was part of professionalization of advertising, I, I suspect, at the end of the 80s. You know, it was in the 70s and early 80s London it was you know it was art school kids meets graduates and I think um, one of the wrong turns the industry took actually was to kind of professionalize itself it, mm. it became less diverse ironically you know mm. in, a, in a different meaning of that of that word but um but but I was lucky um, I learned to apply my trade as a strategist and then I went to um that, that was at AMV which is an agency you'll know yeah then I, know, I went yeah. to the Low, which was my finishing school, it was probably the best agency in the world at that point, working with Smirnoff and Tesco and Vauxhall and Lloyds and Reebok and Stella Artois and Heineken. You know, that's really where I learned about campaigns, how you build them, how you let them run for years, not months, how you understand that, you know, humans don't live in quarters, you know, <laughs> businesses do. So that whole dance of, of creative versus sort of business upside is something I, I learned there. And then I, to our conversation earlier, I've started two companies, I've sold both. And the, the nice thing about working in advertising is your work is in the public domain for yeah. good or bad. You know, it's not like being an, an auditor where you say, oh, the 2013-14 accounts were yeah. my career highlight. You know, you're judged by the, the trail you leave behind. And um, I left Mullen Low last month. I'm not going to do a third startup, but I am uh, advising creative businesses, not not just agencies, but creative businesses more generally um, about things like growth, brand, uh, even exit. Because I think um, whether it's in London or, or Dublin, whether it's in you know Britain or Ireland, creative industries are, are huge. They're something we do exceptionally well, but they always brush up against, you know, the man and mm-hmm. the, the numbers business. And I'm I'm quite interested in the fact that advertising has always lived on the border between the business of numbers, banks, finance, quarters, yeah. and the ideas business, you know, and imaginative leaps, symbols, design, stuff that's impossible to logically uh, commend, but, but may well be the, the magic that, that, that builds your business rather than just creates, you know, creative froth. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we'll see where that takes me. And if any, if any, have you got a website? Or if anyone's listening, saying he sounds like a smart fellow, we could do with giving him a shout. Where do people get in contact with you? Is there have you got set up a business, or is it you're just doing it kind of in your free time? As it where is there a website, or how can people reach out to you if they want to work if they want to have a chat? 
Well, that's very kind. There's no website yet because I'm literally just out of uh, gainful contracted employment, but I can be found on LinkedIn pretty readily. And uh, yes, I'll, I'll be um, helping people to find me in the very near future. Otherwise, um, yeah, those, those are the digital tools that I'm now craving as an operator well, <laughs> rather than competing with as, as an advertising professional. And you can, when you get your business up, you can just book a campaign on Facebook and promote yourself and, and then fall into that lure of short-termism that we've scathed so much about today. So you can start to, you can start to buy some campaigns on Facebook. Um, thanks. That That's it. That's all she wrote today. We are out of time. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed that chat. It was great to chat. And great to chat about campaigns that... I remember um, and I actually worked on so thanks a million for joining me it was an absolute pleasure great thank and, and as I said I said it before it's a brilliant article it's beautifully written so um, getting it down to whatever it ends up with 1300 words is quite was quite a challenge but it's really well written so I'd urge people to check it out because we've only touched on a bit of it thanks as always to Kier in marketing and Andrea on sound and thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions who helped to make this possible if you like this episode then listen back to other great episodes follow us or tell your colleagues you'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice or you'll pick them up anywhere you get your podcast so until next time stay safe the inside marketing podcast brought to you by dentsu and irish times media solutions